Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 13 this morning. I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not, but as a follower of Christ, it's often difficult to know how much attention to give to the devil. It sounds a little odd, but how much attention do we give to the devil? And in my experience, it seems that most of us kind of fall into one of two categories. On this hand, the devil gets no attention, meaning we know that he's real and we believe that he exists, but it's really more practically like a fairy tale to us. Uh, It's not really real and it doesn't really affect us that he's out there somewhere, but it's nothing that I want to think about or be involved in. And then on the other side, there are those who see the devil everywhere. He's behind every bush. He's behind every moment. He's behind every episode. Anytime anything happens that seems just a little bit unusual, it's always the devil. That the devil gets credit for everything. And if he's behind every bush, we cast him out of every bush. You have met people that way. Now, the reality is, the devil is real. And he hates you. It should be very clear. He hates you. He hates your marriage because it exists to exalt Christ. He hates your children because they are image bearers of God. He hates your spiritual life. He hates your emotional life. He hates your sexual life. He hates every single thing about you. And he's doing anything he can actively, consistently to destroy you. I mean, think about 1 Peter 5.8. It says, be sober-minded and alert. Meaning, serious-minded, be thoughtful, and be watchful, be looking for this. Because your adversary, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The devil is not somebody else's problem, the devil is your problem. The devil is not just against somebody else, he's against you. And it does say that we should be thoughtful about this, that we should be seriously minded. We should be constantly watchful and aware that like a lion, he is looking constantly for an opportune time to take you down. This is why in Ephesians 6, as it talks to us about how to deal with the devil, it tells us in verse 12 that our struggle is really not against flesh and blood, meaning that all of the interpersonal conflict you have and all of the struggle struggles you have in every area of your life, you know the enemy is really not the other person? That our struggle is really never against flesh and blood. It's against the demonic forces in the heavenly places. That there is a heavenly realm filled with demonic forces that are trying to destroy you. And so the truth is, is that we have to be aware that he exists and we have to take him seriously. We don't have to be afraid, but we should be aware. We should be sober-minded about the reality of the enemy. Now, one thing you need to know about the devil is this, and this is important. The devil is crafty, but he's not creative. He's crafty, but he's not creative. He's like a roaring lion, meaning that he's very subtle. He comes at us unexpectedly and quietly, and before we know it, he can devour us, our futures, our families, and our lives. He is crafty. He works in very crafty ways, but know this, he's just not that creative. 2 Corinthians 2, 11 
Paul is talking about the issue of forgiveness, and he wants to make sure they forgive people because he knows that if they don't, it's going to create a stronghold in their life and tear them and their family apart. And so he says this. He goes, I don't want to let Satan outwit you, which means it's possible for him to outwit us. But he says this. He doesn't have to because we should not be ignorant of his schemes. Now, that's an encouraging word because what Paul is saying is this. Satan has regular schemes that he's been using from the beginning of time. And we don't have to be unaware of them. It's possible for us to know the way the devil works, be aware that he exists, be sober-minded about it, but we can know exactly what he's been doing. And the reason is, is because he's always been doing the same thing. And the primary thing he does, beyond all of the weird stuff you think of when you think about the devil, apart from all the supernatural things you seem to think of, the devil's primary tactic is to simply lie. That's what he does. He just, he just lies to you. A demonic stronghold is a lie that you've believed for so long that's created a fortress around you. The enemy is a liar to his very core, and his primary weapon is to lie to you. And once you believe those lies, it will lead you in the wrong direction, which will ultimately lead you into destruction. Last week, we began a seven-part series through the prodigal son. And the reason we're doing seven weeks on the prodigal son is because in this familiar story, there are seven themes. And those seven themes are the themes of the Bible. They're the themes that run all the way throughout the Gospel of Luke, and they are the themes of our life. There are seven foundational themes that are seen in this one familiar story that are important for all of us to know. And not only do these seven themes help us understand our life and what it means to walk with God, but the truth is, is that these seven themes and this story really speak to us in a way that we cannot quite even understand. And the reason is because this story stirs up in us the greatest longing that any of us have. You may not be able to articulate it like this, but the greatest longing of your heart is a longing for home. A place to be known, a place to belong, a place that is safe. That's the greatest longing of our heart. And what the prodigal son talks to us about is about home. How to find home and where home is and running away from home and coming back home and all the relationships at home. And the primary thing it's showing us is that home is not really a place. Home is a person and his name is Jesus Christ. Now, the first theme we looked at last week is simply this. And it is the foundation of every other theme. Our life is built on the confidence of this one statement we saw last week. And it is this. Jesus highly values, deeply loves, and aggressively pursues the lost. You must believe this. At your very core, you must believe. And don't think about it in terms of someone else. Jesus highly values you. He deeply loves you. And he passionately is coming after you all of the time. That is, in one sentence, Luke 15. This morning, I want us to look at the second theme, which is the lie of leaving home. The lie of leaving home. And what we're going to see as we continue in this story is that we always leave home when we believe a lie about our deepest longings. We always leave home 
whether in big dramatic ways or just moment by moment as we walk away from the Lord, we always leave home when we believe a lie about our deepest longings. Let's look at it together in Luke 15. If you're there in verse 11, say amen. We're just going to read 11 through 16. It says, and he said, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there, he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. Stop right there. Now, next week, we're going to focus on verses 14 through 16 and we're going to look at the consequences of leaving home. I plead with you not to miss next week. What does it look like in our lives when we wander away from God? That's what we'll see next week. But... I want to talk before that about what it even means to leave home. How is it that someone chooses to walk away from the Lord or to never come to him in the first place? Now, the story begins with this man who had two sons and a younger son's request. Look at it in verse 12. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, we're so removed from Middle Eastern culture, not even now, but even ancient Middle Eastern culture, that it's hard for us to understand the weight and significance of this statement. And it's hard to even communicate this. The truth is, I say that to you and no one gasps, no one is shocked, no one seems surprised by what this young man said. But you have to understand that immediately as Jesus began this story, this would have been utterly and absolutely shocking in every way. That there is never a time in which a son would have asked for this. And if a son would have asked for this, there was never a time when the father would have given a request like this. The reality is, is everything in Middle Eastern culture is about honor. It still is. It's about family. And this request was an absolute rejection of the father. Now you say, well, how is that? He's just asking for a little bit of his property. But the reality is, and the reason they would have gasped when he said this, and the reason he would have held their attention is because this was an unheard of situation. You see, because what the son was saying to his father in a culture of honoring your parents and honoring your family, in which family was central to everything in culture, what the son said to his father in this moment is this, father, I don't want you. I just want your stuff. Father, I don't, I don't care about you, and I don't care about what this does to you. All I care about is that which is coming to me. That's essentially what he's asking for. This is not about relationship to the younger son. It's about property. He just wants his stuff, but by asking for it, he's wishing that his father was dead. I want now what would come to me later when you died, so can we just act like you're dead so I can get what is coming to me later? It was an absolute rejection of the father. But not only that, it was devastating to the family. It was devastating to the family. It's so interesting that when he says, ask this request in verse 12, look what it says. Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. 
Now, it's really unusual this word would be used here. This is a word, property, that is only used two times in the New Testament, and it's right here. It's not a logical word that'd be used. The logical word is inheritance. This is what we're thinking. Father, give me the inheritance that is coming to me, what you receive when a parent dies. But he doesn't use the word inheritance intentionally because the younger son doesn't want inheritance. He doesn't want inheritance because inheritance comes with responsibility. You see, what the father had is what every father would have had at this time. He didn't have a lot of cash money. He had property. Everything was done in terms of property. Your wealth was determined by how much property you had and then what you did on that property. So a great landowner was considered extremely wealthy. And the way a family got land was that generations upon generations upon generations accumulated and gave it. And so when a father dies and passes his land on to his children, that's a stewardship. Because the only way that the next generation is going to be sustained is if they have land. And the next generation after that is if they have land. So what generations do is they accumulate property, and this father is the one who has been entrusted with all of this property that generations have sacrificed for, worked for, and worked on. And everything about the family's identity is based upon the owning of this land. And so here, what the son is asking the father to do is to take a third, which was what belonged to the younger son, of all of the property that generations had gained and sell it off in one moment so that the son can get what is coming to him. You see, the son has no concern with what generations in the past had worked for. He has no concern with what generations in the future are going to need. This is an utterly to its very core, selfish request with complete rejection of his father and disregard for his family. He just wanted out. And everything about this decision affects everything about the future of this family. Now, as shocking as the request is, it's not near as shocking as the father's response. There's a ton of work that has been, I don't know of any story that's gotten more attention than the story of the prodigal son. And there's all kinds of Middle Eastern scholars throughout the years who have written on this, and they all agree on this, that if this request was made, immediately the father would have most likely put the son out, would have rejected the son, would have recognized what the son was trying to do, would have honored the future of the family more than he would his son, that this response is incredibly shocking. Because in the next breath, it simply says this at the end of verse 12. And so he divided his property between them. Now, the only way to do that is to sell land. And the only way to do that is to sell it quickly. And you're never going to get as much as you would if you sold it slowly. But the father, the son said, I want what's coming to me now. So the father took a third of all of his property and he, he sold it. Never to be gotten back again. It was gone. Another landowner had it. Another family had that now as a part of their inheritance. He cashed in a third of his property. He then gave that cash to his son. Then it tells us this in verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son then gathered all that he had, the cash from the third of the property that had been sold, a third of the family's generational inheritance, And he went into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Now, every line of that matters. 
Because it does tell us that what he was gathering, we said, was, was his property. The reality is it's generational property. But he took the cash, which represented a third of everything the family owned, and it says he journeyed into a far country. Now, that is always not only a sign of leaving home, it's a sign of leaving family and faith. If you look at the book of Ruth, you'll see how Ruth's family went away from home, away from the people of God, which is always a sign of going away from your family and going away from the faith. He went into a far country in which in everyone's mind that heard this would mean this. He was rejecting his family. He was rejecting his faith. He wanted to get as far away from home as he possibly could. And there, in that far country, he squandered all of the family's inheritance in reckless living. Now, we we don't know what reckless living means. We can imagine it. I will tell you this, that at the end of the story, when the younger, the older son is outside of the house pouting because the younger son has come home and the father is celebrating that he's come home because he was a dad, he's now alive, the younger brother is mad and he says, this, my brother, has devoured our property with prostitutes. Now, I don't know if he was just accusing him of the worst thing that he could imagine, but the reality is, is that this is what he did. He took the third of the family's inheritance that is never to be regained again. He went and blew all of it and blew it fast. Because it tells us that it wasn't very long after that, that there was a famine, he lost everything, and then by the end of verse 16, he's just longing to get something that the pigs eat, but no one even gave him that. Squandered his property in reckless living. Careless, thoughtless, selfish, humiliating, disgraceful not only for him, but disgraceful for the entire family and their reputation in the community. When you think about the reality of what he actually did, he didn't just take some money and go blow it. He turned his back on his father, rejected him, turned his back on his family with no regard towards anything else. You just simply have to ask the simple question, why? I mean, what would, what would cause him to do something like that? Why would he reject his father so publicly? Why would he bring so much shame upon the family? We can answer that question in two words. If you were taking notes, I'd encourage you to write these two words down. He did it because of longing and a lie longing and a lie. You can explain everything the prodigal son did in those two words. There was a presence of a longing and the presence of a lie. The younger son had a longing in his heart. He just longed for something more. He was raised in the father's home. He had worked for the father. He was familiar with the father. And all of a sudden he got restless. He started to desire something more. He started to have these grand visions of all the things that he's missed. Because his father kept him at home. And he began to resent his father and resent his older brother and resent the fact that like every other generation, he had to stay home and work the land. And all of a sudden, in his mind, he started to imagine all that was out there that he's missing out on. He had a longing for freedom. He wanted to be his own man. He had a longing for life. He had a longing for freedom and joy He had a longing for greater happiness and all of these things were stirring up inside of his mind. He believed there had to be more out there than he had experienced. And it was at that moment in which the devil saw an opening. He's crafty 
but he's not creative. That longing for something more is a great opportunity for the devil to come in. And so there was the presence of a longing, and then there was the presence of a lie, in which in that moment, when everything inside of him had to believe that there was something more to life, Satan comes and simply whispers, everything you're looking for is out there. Everything you're looking for is out there. And from that little lie... The son began to believe the lie that home was confining. That the rules were too much. That he would never have freedom. He would never have life. That all of the stuff he's looking for could never be found at home. It has to be found far away. He began to believe the lie that real life is waiting for him out there. That all of the stories he's heard about, all the things that were out there, were better than anything he could ever get at home. In other words, he left home... Because he believed a lie about his deepest longing. You say, well, why does, this, why does this matter to us? It matters to us for this simple reason. We have the exact same longing, and the devil tells us the exact same lie. That's it. I mean, this is the reason we're spending seven weeks in this, because in every one of these little episodes, we see something that is not only true of our lives, it's true from all of Scripture, that we have the exact same longing in us, and the enemy is telling us the exact same lie. We are born sinners. We're distant from God. We're born physically, but we have no spiritual life. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians chapter 2, which means we are born with a longing. Listen to me. This has to resonate with you. We're born with the belief that there has to be something more than what we're experiencing. And the older we get, the more this longing is stirred up inside of us. And it's true. There is more. There is always more. But it's at that moment in which we feel that longing stirring up inside of us that the enemy tells us that the reason we feel that way is because what we're experiencing is not good. And it tells us that, that Jesus wants to confine us and Jesus wants to put burdens on us and the church is not the way to freedom. And he begins to give us these visions of all the things out there. And the enemy, by the way, at a very young age, has a way to put in front of your eyes in a way that no parent can fully protect from just some little glimpses of all the things that are out there. Once you get some of those glimpses, the enemy comes in at that moment and begins his devouring process. He begins to make us to believe that we will never be happy outside, uh, inside of, of the home in the presence of the Lord. You see, this is exactly what he did in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is a special place, not because of the land. It's a special place because God's presence was there. Adam and Eve felt totally at home because the only place we feel home is in the presence of God. You were created for God's presence, as Adam and Eve were, and our distance from the presence of God makes us longing. Every longing is fulfilled within God's presence. But Satan came to Adam and Eve and just simply said, God doesn't love you. He's lying to you. He says that if you do this or if you don't do that, then everything's going to be fine. But Satan says, I want you to know there's more out there. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. If you really want to know something good, if you really want to experience life, go away. And they did. They believed the lie of the enemy because that's always been Satan's tactic. And it led them into destruction 
exactly like it did the prodigal son, the exact lie and the exact result. You see, what was so significant about the Garden of Eden was not that Adam and Eve broke a rule. It's that they rejected the Father. Just just imagine this with me for a minute. Imagine a a son comes home after his freshman year of college and he hasn't come home the whole first semester. He hasn't seen his family. He's been a little bit distant, hasn't called. They were expecting home a couple of weeks early. Uh, But he called his parents and said, hey, my friends are doing a bunch of stuff and uh, I'm just going to come right before Christmas. And he shows up the morning of Christmas Eve. They're so excited to see him. They've missed him and uh, he hasn't called as he said he was going to and It just seems real quickly that something's not right. He says to his father, hey, hey, dad, listen, can can I talk to you for just a minute? Dad says, sure. He says, well, listen, I've just been thinking a lot about life, and um, you're going to die someday, right? He says, well, yeah. He says, and when you die, I'm going to get a half of everything, right? They say, well, yeah, your brother's going to get half, and, and you'll get a half. He says, well, dad, I've just been thinking about this. I don't know how long you're going to be alive, but it could, it could be a while. And it could be 15, it could be, it could be 20 more years. And uh, I really would like some of that now. Would it be possible right now for, for me to go ahead and get my half? The father, without hesitation, goes into his office and he says, Now, son, you know that, that I have years left and your mother has years left and I may die first and we don't know what's going to happen and, and we're going to need this money. He says, I know, but I'd really like my half now. And so the father goes and he opens up his computer and he goes to his bank accounts and he takes half and he transfers it. He goes to all of his investment accounts, he takes half, he transfers it. He looks on his counter and he's got two sets of keys. He takes one set, he gives it to him. He takes all the equity in his home, he takes half of that and he gives it to him and he hands in one moment his son a half of everything that he owns. The son takes all of it and the smell in the house, you can smell it's Christmas Eve and Mom is cooking and it's just an exciting moment. But all of a sudden, when the son gets everything that was coming to him, he looks at his father and says, hey, dad, it's been great to see you, but I think I'm just gonna go ahead and go. I've got some friends that are waiting. He leaves. And then at Christmas Eve, there's an empty seat. There's mom, there's there's dad, there's brother, and there's an empty seat. Listen, in that moment, the most painful thing is not the money. The most painful thing is the son. At that moment, you just, you don't care that much about the money. Forget the money. I don't need the money. You care about the son. Even if you never get the money back, you want the son back. That's what hurts so much. The true nature of sin is not breaking a rule. It's breaking a relationship. See, the true nature of sin is every single time you walk away from the Lord because you believe there's something better, because you believed the lie that there is something more. Sin is ultimately about leaving home. It is an offense against a holy God. God has given us his laws and we break them and we, we rebel against God. But listen, if you only think of sin as breaking the rules, your sin will never grieve your heart. Your sin only begins to grieve you when you understand how your sin grieves God. 
It is always a rejection of the God who created you, who highly values you, who deeply loves you, who aggressively pursues you. That is always the nature of sin. It is rejecting the Father and walking away. And some of us do it really boldly and loudly like the prodigal son. I mean, there is something in some twisted way you respect about the prodigal son just wanting to go for it. Like, like, Dad, I want everything that's coming to me. He takes everything and within a minute just blows it. I mean, he, he is not afraid of what anyone is going to think about he or his family. He is boldly and loudly sinning. But can I make you aware that it is exactly the same thing when you do what the older brother did and more subtly and quietly reject the heart of the father? You see, remember at the end of the story, there is one son that has gone from home and it's not the younger son. The younger son repents. He comes to his senses. After all of the consequences, he brings nothing back with him. He comes back to the father. The father embraces him, kisses him, puts a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet, brings him back into the family. And at the end of the story, there's another brother that's outside. And the reason he's outside is because he's angry that the father extended grace to the younger son. And he's a little more quiet about it. And he's followed a little bit more of the rules because he says, Father, I've always done what you asked me to do. Why are you doing this for him? But he's just as distant from the father as the younger son was. He just did it a little more quietly. You see, we have a tendency to think in categories that, well, I'm not the prodigal. The reality is, is that in some ways all of us are the prodigal because at the end of the story, the older brother who always followed the rules is the prodigal. Because it's not about obeying the rules. It's about intimacy with Jesus Christ. That's what God's looking for. He's not concerned that you obey all the rules to obey all the rules. It is possible to obey the rules and have no relationship with Jesus. God wants your heart. He wants your intimacy. And sin is the rejection of the Father. And it happens every time we believe the lie that the deepest longings of our heart can be met anywhere apart from Jesus Christ. Here's the saddest part. And I want you to listen carefully. I'm thinking a lot about our students, our college students this morning. The saddest part is this. Is that every time you believe the lie about how to meet your deepest longings, it leads you into deeper longing. Can you just hear this? I I wish some of our older adults could stand up and give testimony to this because you know this is going to be true. The enemy says your greatest needs are going to be met out there, so you run away. And the further you get from intimacy with Jesus, the deeper your longings get. It's like drinking salt water. It doesn't satisfy your thirst. It just makes you more thirsty. Just know this and hear this and believe it based upon the authority of Scripture and the testimony of your pastor's life. Every single time you walk away from the Lord to fulfill a longing, your longing gets greater. Any of our older people give a testimony to that, do an amen to that. It just increases your longing. It does not satisfy you at all. That is the irony of sin, is that running away from the Lord is running away from what you want most. And all of the joy and all of the freedom and all of the life and all of the acceptance is only found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because our deepest longings are only met in 
Now, lest we, like the other brother, feel self-righteous when we think about the prodigal. Can't we just acknowledge that we all feel the constant pull away from home? Do you feel it? Do you feel like Hebrews 2 talks about, be careful lest you drift away, that there's this current of flesh and this current of the demonic forces in the heavenly places, and there's this current of the lust of the flesh and the pride of life constantly just pulling us away from the Lord? Do you just feel this constant pull? Do you feel like the hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. I love Jesus. I I genuinely love Jesus. And every single day, as much as I love Jesus, I feel a pull away from him. I constantly feel it. And as I'm thinking about this, I'm just wondering, well, how in the world do we fight against those constant lies of the enemy and and that propensity we have to constantly leave him? What do we do in order to fight that? Well, it's actually quite simple. Listen, if Satan's greatest tactic is a lie, our greatest weapon is the truth. Thank you. He's got one primary weapon. Listen to me. He's got one primary weapon. He uses it every single day in every single moment. This is the most unrelenting, constant battle of your life. It is unrelenting, and it will be until the day you die. One of the greatest things about heaven is the end of the lies of the enemy. The end of the constant pull away from the Lord. It is constant, unrelenting, never-ending, lie upon lie upon lie. And the only way we combat it is by faith in the truth of God's word. This is why Ephesians 6, 16, when it's talking about how we fight in spiritual battle, it says this. It says, take up the shield of faith so that you might extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one. Think about this word picture with me. The enemy is constantly shooting fiery darts at you and your children and your marriage. And his hope is, that he might get one of those fiery darts in there and by you just stepping away from home a little bit, that he might consume you with lust and with desires. Why does every sin matter? Because every time a sin gets in, it's a little fiery arrow that's getting into your heart and if you let it stay there, it will consume you. It begins with one step away. But God has not left us alone. He's left us with a shield of faith and the shield of faith is the word of God. This is where we have the promises of God. And if there is an unrelenting battle with the enemy to constantly believe his lies, there must be an unrelenting pursuit of God in his word that we might extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one. If you want to protect your children and your marriage and your moral life, you protect it by consuming this book. That's it. There's no secrets. This is it. And you don't get up And giving five minutes while you're reading it on your phone so that every time something pops up, you're distracted for a few seconds. No, you get an old-fashioned book and you open it up and you spend time day after day after day and you read it and you get a promise and you claim the promise and you tell yourself that promise every day. And as you begin to get in this book, which is alive, by the way, it is a living and active book. And what happens in your life is day after day you realize Jesus is better. And all of a sudden you start saying no to sins you used to say yes to. Why? Because you're actually fighting. 
I'm so tired. I told Sky Pratt this after the first service. He said, man, you got fired up. I said, I'm tired of seeing my church members that I love getting bullied by the devil. I'm tired of it. You don't have to live that way. It is possible for you to take up the shield of faith, which is the promises of God, and extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one. Because the truth is, is that Jesus is just better. Are you, are you fighting at all? Like, are you fighting for your family? Are you fighting for your children? Are you fighting for your marriage? Are you fighting for your moral life? Are you fighting for your purity? Like the enemy is unrelenting, so you be unrelenting in your fight. Fight the good fight of faith every day through the word. Fight the lies. Turn towards him. Take a step of faith. And here's the beauty of it. Listen, every time we say no to sin, what we're doing is we're saying no because we believe Jesus is better. And we take a step towards him. And every time we take a step towards him, we feel more at home. And every time we take a step towards him, we feel more of our deepest longings met. Because this is the truth. Every single time you take a step toward Jesus, you take a step toward home. I just pray by God's grace that you would take steps in that direction and see that only Jesus can meet the deepest longings of your heart. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.